0: Today's readings are Acts 11-13, through 13, Rabbit Trails. Y'all might want to run to the bathroom, grab a drink, maybe make breakfast and pack a lunch. <laughs> this is a bit long today. So yesterday we went pretty deep on Peter's vision, even reading ahead a bit into chapter 11 to finish our point. So today we're going to circle back and talk about Saul slash Paul. Now, Acts 9-18 says, and immediately something like scales fell from his eyes. The Aramaic New Testament says, and at once something that resembled scales fell from his eyes, and his eyes were opened. I just have to say, this is a reference I hear so often from people who describe what happened to them once they set their hearts to read the Bible start to finish. And it's one I've used myself to describe the experience of reading the entirety of the Word on many occasions. I think we can all identify with this to an extent, and I'm so grateful this example is in the Word for us to relate to both for ourselves and as an illustration to offer up to others. Another verse which I think completes the picture is Daniel 10-12, where the angel says to Daniel that from the moment he set his heart to understand, his prayers had been heard. Something changes when we open the Word and set our heart to understand not reading it to prove ourselves or our doctrine right, but to see what Yahweh says is right, so that we may follow him. Let's go into chapter 11. Beginning around Acts eleven nineteen, we see that the believers are scattered after what happened to Stephen. And in this scattering, they're still preaching the gospel, but exclusively to the Jews, as they had been up until this point. However, some of them began preaching the gospel to Hellenists or Gentiles. Now, this is causing quite a stir because there are all these new Gentiles who are converting to the way. The body of Jewish believers in Jerusalem, which the ESV translates as church, gets wind of this. And so they send Barnabas to check it out. No doubt, those that heard this news were divided, with some being in wonder that this was taking place, as we saw yesterday, and some being none too pleased, as we also see in our readings. But Barnabas was a man of Yahweh, and when he arrived, he immediately recognized Yahweh's hand, seeing his grace in the movement, and this caused him to rejoice and encourage them in the good work that they were doing. Not only this, but he decided to go find Paul and bring him back to help him teach these Gentiles who were now converted to worshiping the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And it says they were there for an entire year teaching. And when did they teach? Well, we're about to read that these new converted Gentiles joined them on the Sabbath. And they even took part in the oldest organized Bible study in history, which is still going on today. I've spoken on that before, but I'll cover it again in a few. In Acts 12.3, we see that Peter was arrested during the Days of Unleavened Bread. But in Acts 12.4, it says that they intended to bring Peter out to the people after the Passover. Now, you may or may not know, but there are two biblical feasts being spoken of here. Passover takes place as a one-day feast, and then the following day, we enter into the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which lasts seven days. They are two distinct feasts, but since they take place right on top of each other, they're generally, and often now, referred to collectively as Passover. It's like how some Christians refer to the time of November to December as the holiday season. However, there is a big translation issue here if you're reading the King James Version. So in Acts 12.4, the King James Version translates Passover as Easter. Please do not take my word for this or for any other matter. Click here to see this verse in several translations and on Bible Hub. Click here to see the interlinear Greek to see that Passover is the accurate translation. Now, this errant translation choice has led many Christians to believe one of two things. Either that Easter is the modern version of Passover, or that Easter is the Christian version of Passover. Neither is the case. There need not be a Christian version of any of Yahweh's holy days, because they're His. They weren't Jewish to begin with. They belong to the Father and are for anyone who wishes to honor and obey Him in keeping them. Leviticus twenty-three two says, These are the appointed feasts of Yahweh that you shall proclaim as holy convocations. They are my appointed feast." This is Yahweh talking, and I trust in His word. He never declared them as Jewish. Further, there are customs on Easter that directly contradict how we are told to keep Passover and unleavened bread, and that the apostles would most assuredly not be taking part in. I'm not going to go into that, but you can do the legwork on those if you like. Now, my intention here is not to speak to Easter, but rather to point out the jarring translation from a holy day declared by Yahweh to an entirely different event. Passover is the day that the Father set aside as holy unto Him, and He fulfilled that feast as He said He would in the death and resurrection of His Son, just as He gave the Ten Commandments on Shavuot and then later fulfilled that further by giving the Holy Spirit on that day as well. The Father has already set aside appointed times for these significant events, with a founding event for each and a future event for each. A study of the biblical feasts will show that there are spring feasts and fall feasts. The spring feasts have all been fulfilled, but the fall feasts are yet to come. The biblical feasts were set up and intended by the Father as teaching tools so that we will know Him, our history, and our future. Main point. Passover and Easter are not the same thing. A single translation treating them as the same does not change that. In Acts 12.12, we see something that you may just read over, but it's actually something we need to make note of. It reads, John, whose other name was Mark. So what we're reading here is something that would have made a lot of sense to a Jewish person living in Rome at that time. It was very common for Jews to have a Hebrew name and a Roman name because they were also Roman citizens. Plus, there are two languages here, Hebrew and Greek. So they had a name in each language. In this passage, we're being told his Hebrew name and also his Roman name. Now, to us, John and Mark seem like nice English names, and that's because they are. I think that's why we don't really notice this that much. If we were reading their transliterated names, which is their names as they would have actually heard them in their lifetimes, this sentence would say, Yohanan, whose other name is Marcus. Now, Yohanan would have immediately recognized from the Old Testament as being a Hebrew name. And Marcus it's recognized as a Greek name. Why is this important? Because in Acts 13, 9, we read a sentence very much like this again. But Saul, who was also called Paul, you see, Paul was also a Hebrew who held Roman citizenship, and therefore he too had both a Hebrew and a Roman name. Many people assume that his name was changed to Paul after he became a believer in Messiah, but that's simply not the case. Paul's name was never changed. You will not read that in the Bible. This is an assumption, an errant teaching that has been passed down and is therefore assumed to be in the Bible by folks who have not read it. Did you notice I said many believe his name was changed to Paul after he became a believer in Messiah, not after he converted? Okay, y'all, Paul never converted because there was no need to. He was born a Jew, raised a Jew, lived a Jew, and remained a Jew. He then came to the realization that Yeshua was the promised and predicted Messiah. There was no need to convert to anything, as he was already a follower of Yahweh. He did need to repent. Goodness, don't we all? But once he met Messiah and believed in him, there was no need to convert from being a Jew. Just as we, as Christians, do not need to convert from anything once we realize that the whole Bible applies to us. We merely go on to live a fuller version of our lifelong faith. The same is true for Saul, whose name was also Paul. It is a tragedy of eternal proportions that Christians have taught for thousands of years that our brethren must abandon their Jewishness in order to believe in Messiah. This has created a tremendously painful fracture in the family tree of Yahweh's people between Jews and Christians. It is likewise an equal tragedy, which we will read, that the Jews believe Christians must convert to Judaism in order to be grafted in as Yahweh's people. Now, we're going to see poor Paul talk himself blue in the face trying to explain this, and here we are in 2020 with folks still not getting it. Wait, Paul and Saul sound very much like English names too, right? Right. Well, transliterated, those names would be Shaul and Pavlos. Something to look after, to look for, sorry. After Paul's encounter with Messiah, he is still called Saul 11 times. Keep an eye out because those are coming up. I'll stick mostly with Paul for my notes because that's what most are familiar with to the modern reader. But it's important to know that Paul's name was not changed, as was the case with Abraham and Israel. Their names were changed. He simply had dual citizenship and therefore a name in each language. At the end of chapter 12, we see Herod's death, but it's a little difficult to grasp what's being told here. One of our early historians, Josephus, who actually lived around this time, recorded information on Herod's death that tells us a little more detail. Now, why do I trust Josephus? Well, I certainly don't trust him as much as I do the father, but he is a noted and revered historian and he has had the distinction of having authored the first extra biblical text considered a historical account by modern scholars, which references and speaks of our Messiah in a favorable fashion, no less. I'm not saying he was without flaw or an inspired author, but rather he is a historian whose writings have been proven valid from a historical standpoint. So here is his account of what's taking place in Acts 12, verses 21 through 23. This is from the Antiquities of the Jews. He put on a garment made wholly of silver and of a contexture truly wonderful and came into the theater early in the morning at which time the silver of his garment, being illuminated by the fresh reflection of the sun's rays upon it, shone out after a surprising manner, and was so resplendent as to spread a horror over those that looked intently upon him. And presently his flatterers cried out, one from one place and another from another, though not for his good, that he was a god, and they added, Be thou merciful to us, for although we have hitherto reverenced thee only as a man, yet shall we henceforth own thee as superior to mortal nature. Upon this the king did neither rebuke them nor reject their impious flattery. This is from Antiquities of the Jews, written by Josephus, book 19. In Acts 13, verses 13 through 15, we see Paul and his companions go into the synagogue on the Sabbath. Now, this is when they were teaching the new converts. In fact, in Acts 15, we will see folks debating on what all to teach them. And Paul pretty much tells them, keep it simple, give them the basics, because they're in the synagogue each Sabbath being taught from the books of Moses and the prophets, so they'll learn the rest of it over time. Do you remember the when you first set out to read the Bible in its entirety? And how overwhelming it seemed. The Father is patient with us and teaches us over time. This is the truth that Paul knew. So what are they talking about here when they say reading from the Law and the Prophets? The term law is used as a replacement for the word Torah, which we also see referred to as the books of Moses. Sometimes we see this all referred to as Torah and Prophets, Moses and Prophets, or Law and the Prophets as we see today in the ESV translation. Either way, Torah, Law, and Moses refer to the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. So these are the foundational scriptures in which Yahweh speaks, tells us how to live, and imparts His instruction to all His people. You know how some traditions are deeply rooted in honoring Yahweh, and that alone, just in honoring Him? Well, they're actually taking part in one of them here today in our readings, and it's called the Torah Cycle. There is a cycle of reading scripture which the Jews began before Messiah was born, in which they read certain portions of the Torah, certain portions of the prophet, and certain portions of the writings, which is the term used to denote the remaining books in the Old Testament. Keep in mind that the New Testament did not exist at this time, and so these are the books they were raised on, studied live by, and taught, and this is a wonderful system that has been set up which would have everyone reading through and diligently studying the entirety of Scripture each year. Why did they go to the synagogues for this? There were no printed Bibles in every home. This is how they learned the Word. We'll talk more about this in tomorrow's notes. It was set up as a brilliant cycle in that all believers read the same passage each week around the world. Still today, if you've ever taken part in reading according to this cycle, you'll find that each week new articles are published as well as notes, discussions, videos on the very part of the Bible that you're reading. It's an astoundingly convenient thing that actually starts out feeling a bit odd (laughs) until you get used to it. You don't notice it until you start reading according to the cycle, but once you begin reading something, and then you notice a new article, a blog post, or such, with someone talking about what you're reading that week, well, it's a pretty neat thing to be on the same page as believers on a global level. <laughs> Messiah himself took part in reading on the Torah cycle, and we've even talked about that here before, so I hope this was just a, reflet- a refresher and I will move on. Spoiler alert. I've been praying and hoping to have a Torah cycle study for those who have gone through the whole Bible in this study, and I think the Father may be making a way for that to happen sometime in the future. Now, moving on, we're going to read Acts 13, verses 38 through 44. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which they could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting in the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts of Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. Wow. What could we not be freed from under Yahweh's law, which was given to us in the books of Moses? You remember all those sacrifices in Leviticus we read about? If you go back and read them, or pay attention when we go through them again as we start over, you'll notice one common thread that may have escaped you the first time. All of those sacrifices were for unintentional sin. There was no sacrifice available for intentional sin. In fact, there are 36 sins listed in the book of Moses, which are punished by being cut off from Israel. These are intentional sins, and there's no sacrifice available to atone for them or restore fellowship between the transgressors and Israel. These include blasphemy, Numbers 1530, and check different translations to get the full meaning as some are vague, idolatry, necromancy, Leviticus 26, and profaning Shabbat. Exodus thirty-one, fourteen. Among others, the sin must be high-handed, according to Numbers fifteen, thirty. The key element in any unpardonable sin is acting with a high hand, which means that you willfully sin, knowing it's a sin, and do it anyway. That's high-handed sin. Messiah stepped in to cover all sin and allow all to be forgiven who would repent, call upon His name, and turn to the Father. Hebrews nine, twenty-three through twenty-five. In Hebrews 10, 5-14. Now, there are other references, but I'm putting these here as a proof text and moving on. I love the reaction of Paul and Barnabas when they, ran, when they were run out of town. In Acts 13, verses 51-52, through 52, it reads, But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. They didn't stay and argue with them. They're obeying Messiah in Matthew 10, 14. Which reads, and if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet, and when you leave that house or town. And the apostles did just that when they met strong resistance. They shook the dust off their sandals and remained in the peace and joy of the Holy Spirit. Now this is an example of how to respond to those who would argue insistently and not receive the truth of the Father. Messiah didn't tell us to argue with them on Facebook or to constantly post biting message indirectly targeting them on our personal page. He didn't tell us to comment on all their posts or speak ill of them publicly by listing their transgressions while disguising it as a prayer request. And most importantly, he didn't tell us to abandon our purpose, what the Father has us doing for him, in order to gratify our desire to prove ourselves right in this person's eyes. Instead, he instructed us, To lean not onto our own understanding, but to follow Him instead. Shake that dust off, brothers and sisters. Keep your chin up. We're serving the King. Test everything. Hold tight to what is good. 1 Thessalonians 5.21 We are saved by grace alone. Obedience is not the root of our salvation, but it is the fruit. May Yahweh bless the reading of His Word. I love y'all. Bye-bye.